Welcome to the browser podcast, Writers We Admire, in which we talk to writers we admire. I'm Robert Cottrell, the editor of the browser, and I'm sitting now with Will Davis, who we remember and admire greatly as the blogger Potlatch, and who has since devoted himself much more, I think, to academic and professional writing. We're in his office now at Goldsmiths College in London, but who also unleashes regular blockbusters on the Long Reads page of The Guardian. Uh, Will, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Now, could I ask you first about Potletch? I mean, it was always one of my favourite go-to blogs. It was part of what seems now like a golden age of blogging. Yeah. Yeah, what took you there and what took you away? Um, I, well, I actually began blogging a little bit before then, uh, around about 2002, when not long after the term blog had first appeared, I think, and I was blogging via a work blog with some colleagues. Um, and then after I, after I stopped that job, I, I set up Potlatch, um, I think in about 2004, 2005, around about then, and uh, so I already was familiar with blogging, the, the nature of a, a blogging platform and the software and that sort of thing. And I would got into the habit of it. And having switched to a, a new job, I decided I wanted to keep doing it. So a lot of people, I think, at the time when blogs were first picking up, and remember this was before social media in the form of Facebook and Twitter and all that sort of thing had come along. Uh, and, and one of the early things people said about blogs was, who the hell's going to want to read you just kind of mouthing off into the ether? Um, and I think that sort of sense that it was an odd thing to do was quite off-putting to some people because they didn't know they had anything to say. I mean, nowadays, of course, everyone feels they've got plenty to say in, in all sorts of different forums and so on. But at the time, it was I suppose it, it was something that didn't entire, come entirely naturally. People still assumed that to publish was to do something with an editor and, and, and possibly for money and, and, and via some kind of print publication. But because I suppose I'd already done it via work, my confidence in it and my, my inhibitions had, uh, my confidence in it had, had risen and my inhibitions had, had, had sort of um, weren't, weren't present to the same extent they might otherwise have been. So I, I just got into this habit of, of, of blogging and, and, and following other blogs, which of course, back then, 2005, six, seven, um, around about that time, Blogs were heavily dependent on each other in order to be noticed and to be read because there wasn't this kind of constant whirlwind of Facebook and Twitter linking to things. So it was very much about cross-linkages. There were people who um, uh, aggregated blogs. Well, the browser obviously was one of the places that used to draw attention to my blogs, which was always very welcome. And it really depended on on a community of bloggers. And it it was quite a different kind of online space than what then emerged soon afterwards with... I mean, I think Facebook really took off around about 2007, around about then. That's when I joined Facebook. And then Twitter kind of was exploding around about the same time. And now, for someone who is primarily a blogger, it almost seems rather analogue in comparison to where we are now to be kind of using these platforms like, you know, purely just using TypePad or WordPress in that kind of traditional sort of occasional 600-word pieces with links, comments. That's format, which I associate with an era of roundabout sort of 2002 to sort of 2008 was its kind of heyday, I suppose. It, it, it has uh, slightly been uh, pushed slightly to, maybe not to the margins, but it, it's, it's lost its centrality in, in, in the kind of online space as a result of the, of, of you know, 
<laughs> capitalist social media, basically. You, th- you think it's that more than just losing its novelty value? I mean, it's probably still there to a great extent. I think mm. that it's... Um, but I think there wasn't really a... It was, it, was a, it was one of the most social ways to use the internet back then. I mean, it's worth remembering. I mean, there were, obviously there were message boards. There was, you know, Microsoft Instant Messenger. There was email. But I think for a while it was a way in which... Um, I mean, I used to, you know, I'd have ideas and I'd want to share these ideas. So I would see it as a way of, of punting things out there and hoping that, um, you know, that some other bloggers would link to it and that way other people would see it and other people would see it. It was a much slower process. I mean, it could take sort of maybe sort of several days after you'd write a piece, um, the browser or, or someone else might pick it up, and then suddenly it would be sort of several thousand people, and that would be, oh, you know, I'm, I'm getting this, I'm, this is becoming a, a piece of, this is becoming a publication. It starts as a thought, and it gradually turns into a publication. Whereas now, I mean, the pace of Twitter is that something can be sort of, you know, can be retweeted several hundred or thousand times within, within, a, within a few hours, but then be forgotten again very quickly after that. So I think the whole pace of turnover has gone up. I do also think that, you know, a bit like space sort of <laughs> slow food or slow all sorts of other things, I think, or, you know, vinyl, you know, there is a kind of, I think people, uh, the, 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 the value of things that don't move at that pace um, and that um, kind of, the, you know, sheer ephemera of social media, I think people are possibly going to, oh, you know, that, that, that it retains its value, um, not just in spite of all this sort of other stuff, but almost because of it. So I think that, you know, people, and, and you know, the, the rise of long-form journalism in that time, which obviously it's not, wasn't, wasn't that, I mean, long-form journalism had existed for a long time, but this idea that actually people want to know what is a really good three or four thousand word piece to read, I think that's also arisen partly in the context of a of a of an online public sphere that has become just far too sort of frenetic and uh, and kind of gamified really you know of kind of, uh, of, sort of um, looking for clicks and and looking for for shock and looking for to troll and all that sort of stuff so i suppose in amongst all of that um other types of blogging um you know the traditional blogging still retains quite a lot of value and actually i do still blog so potlatch if i, I think i set it up to say around about 2004 2005 it fell by the wayside, oh, I don't know, I mean, two or three years ago now, I, I kind of haven't really, I sort of stopped using it. Partly, I, I have a blog at, at work, which is, um, I, I run a research centre called the Political Economy Research Centre here at Goldsmiths, which has a, a blog at, at perk.org.uk, and I blog there, and actually, after Brexit last summer, I um, started blogging um, quite sort of furiously, perhaps in both senses of the word, about Brexit. I wrote three Blogs. You, you, wrote, you wrote one paper in particular, one. very, very soon after the vote, yeah, the next day. which really analysed the demographics That's of right. the vote and was very widely cited. That's right. So there was one blog there. That was the next day I wrote it, the 24th of June of last year. And that uh, really did spread like um, wildfire. I mean, nothing I've ever written has ever had quite that, that, that sort of... Um, has, uh, that never happened to me. And actually, it was that piece in particular that got me noticed by various other types of editors and 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 publishers and so on and um i since then i've had a lot more offers to write well for money to put it <laughs> bluntly um, and um that's that's not that's not the, the sole motivation but obviously it's you know there is something you know and i still write for perk.org.uk but um and i don't write for potlatch any longer but uh, the the, the you know I, I now write a bit for the London Review of Books every now and then and as you mentioned for the Guardian Long Read and these sorts of things and inevitably I mean it, it's 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 
I mean, it's it's nice to write for these things. They're they're, they're publications that I've long admired mm. and long aspired to write for. So I'm not saying that that, that blogging is for is, is is sort of a second class thing to do. But uh, on the other hand, when editors get in touch and say we'd love you to do this or review this book or so on and so on and so on, that becomes the a more uh, that I suppose I have I have started to focus a little bit more on on that sort of thing. I think of you now as working where economics and sociology mm. converge? Well, it's, you could call it political economy, you could mm. call it economic sociology. I think that it's um, something that sociologists have long tried to do, which is to understand things that we, you know, I mean, econ- economics and, and, and certain branches of psychology have such a strong hold over the public imagination that, um, that when things occur that don't seem to remotely fit a certain individualistic economic or psychological uh, view of the world, and Bradley Brexit is a classic example, the vote itself that is, there's a sort of, oh my god, the entire world's fallen apart, everything's kind of sort of exploded, nothing makes any sense whatsoever anymore. And that's when I suppose what, what I, some of my pieces have done is to come in and say, well, hang on a second, you know, um, and, and you know, this is informed by thinking which, back to the kind of classics of sociology of Marx, Weber, Durkheim and so on, and say, well actually, there's, you're assuming here that everything that people do is, is motivated by some relatively narrow individual calculation of their own self-interest or whatever it might be or you're assuming that everything comes down to individual preferences or, or, or particular kind of very sort of micro-social norms but we can stand back and we get a better picture of this by thinking about it in relation to culture and power and the sorts of things that are, that are really the stock in trade of sociology um, I suppose sociology has not been as effective over time as uh, economics or, or recently as psychology in, in, in sharing these insights with, with the, uh, the non-academic public. Do you think that there is any sort of writing now which can and does change the world? Is there power somewhere in writing? That's a good question. I mean, one of the great problems of our times is that the capacity to write and publish and be heard is no longer as centralised and professionalised as it was. And I suppose what I'm really talking about is social media. And this is the this is the causing a lot of the, the, the moral and philosophical panics of our times. This and obviously this notion of post-truth and fake news and that sort of thing. Um, so I think that writing is almost invariably political. It's more the problem which is that can writing ever not be involved in, in politics? That's almost the sort of I mean I mean the in a way, what what it need, what it takes to be a public intellectual is the capacity to kind of step outside of this 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 chaos and 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 distance oneself from politics a bit in order to then return to it. I mean, that's what going the whole way back to Plato, the vision of philosophy was that it was something that that could have a foot outside of politics in order to then inform politics. And I think the problem that we face at the moment is that all writing is is, is in some ways related and I think the rise of digital media means that it's very difficult to, to, to separate oneself from one's identity, one's privilege, one's political position uh, and this is partly what's, what's generating many of the, the, the philosophical crises of our time is that writing has become, I wouldn't say it's become too political, I mean there's nothing wrong with writing being political but it's become sort of swept up in questions of politics. But I, I've been very struck I think, by the by the degree to which social media has been central to the resurgence of feminism. 
Mm. Um, and it seems to me that its its role has been entirely virtuous in that respect, yeah. enabling you know, a quantity of voices to be heard. The, the control over the means of communication and, and, and of publishing and representation uh, has been utterly sort of decentralised in lots of ways. Now, not, I mean, in, in certain respects, of course, there's still the crucial forms of control that, that people like Mark Zuckerberg and so on are, uh, possess and, and don't look like they're going to relinquish in a hurry. But no, of course, I mean, there are democratic properties and we shouldn't lose sight of those. So I think that's an important point. I think um, probably, yes, in order not to lose, lose hope and lose heart, we should also recognise the number of times that, that lies get exposed thanks to social media rather than get reinforced. So that, that probably is, you know, this is important. I mean, um, so we, we, we probably, in order to keep ourselves vaguely hopeful it's worth worth clinging on to some of that sort of stuff i just think that it's you know the change in the the kind of overall ecology of publishing is is such that harder and harder to know what to not what to trust i mean this is the this is the, the sort of one of the great moral panics of the last couple of years um but of course that is also partly because of views and values and perspectives that otherwise didn't have a have a platform a getting one and that is very disruptive to the status quo and that should in some ways be welcomed but it can't be welcomed 100% of questions where to draw the line isn't it well William Davis uh, if we're talking of hope and trust your writing gives us hope and certainly we've got a lot of trust in it so uh, writers we admire William Davis. Will, thank you very much for taking Thanks, part Robert. in this conversation. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing to the browser, which you can do for $34 a year by going to thebrowser.com. The browser recommends the best five or six pieces of writing worth reading each day. Please subscribe, and if you're already a subscriber, thank you.